2: To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy.
1: Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy. And Katie and I have always had this long desire to change just about everything about therapy education and the way that therapists practice. And Occasionally, we find time in our heroes' schedules to make it onto our show, and this time, we are so fortunate to have Dr. Daryl Chow joining us for this episode. Dr. Chow is going to be one of our keynote speakers at the Therapy Reimagined 2020 conference, but... I'm always excited when we have people who actually do the research to back up the things that we talk about as far as where some of the pitfalls are, where some of the changes need to be in our field, and just so excited to have Dr. Chow. So thank you so much for joining us, Daryl.
2: Well, I've been such a big fan of your show, so to be on this, it's, it's a treat. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Uh, we're so glad to have you. And like we ask everyone at the beginning of our episodes, who are you and what are you putting out into the world?
2: And that's the one single question that has been on my mind. Uh, you know, you send me a list of stuff to think about on what might be useful for your listeners. And this is the one uh, I know you asked this of your interviewees and, you know, it got me thinking quite a bit. So I, I am a slow learner. You know, I am... <laughs> You know, when I think about my history, uh, you know, I'm 42. I come from Singapore. I'm a Asian Chinese. I, uh, got out of there about 2010 and I'm now living in Western Australia and recent visit. This is like pre COVID time back home. I was walking down one of the shopping malls and I saw a kindergarten, uh preschool girl, and she was wearing her school uniform and on the uniform, it says pride in performance. And if you know anything about Singapore, performance is everything, right? I mean, we want to be the number one in everything, like number one airports, number one city, you know, even though we were not the number one in Formula One, we just created a new category, night race, number one, you know, we're the first (laughs) to have that. And I say I'm a slow learner with with some level of uh, seriousness about that, because when I think about my history, I, I really felt badly in that kind of uh, system where there was a lot of push for performance and thinking about that and how I, I evolved through that, I realized only in the last uh, several years that when we emphasize on performance, it can actually impede learning. You know, when we are over emphasizing about hitting the right results and the mark we can actually impede a sense of openness willingness to take risks and to learn and I guess that's why I, I I think I'm I'm truly a slow learner when I do stuff I do take a lot of more time to process I need some time to think about uh, things and you know it will be like much later that I get it and I think that also relates to your question about what I'm trying to put out in the world I'm hoping that we appreciate what Uh, what's her name, Susan Rogers, who was a producer for Prince during the Purple Rain album, working with Prince for about four or five years. And she said this in an interview that I love, maybe because it's a confirmation bias, but I love the (laughs) fact that she said that uh, slow progress is real progress. And I just love that. you know. And I think what I'm trying to put out the world is that I think we can afford the time to become deep learners, each and every one of us to take the time to to metabolize, to learn, and to titrate to how intense we need to learn, what we need to learn, what we need to discover, and probably uncover about ourselves as well. There you have it, folks. Prince is the basis for everything that we should be doing.
1: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> so, I am always a fan of tearing down the institutions of psychotherapy around everything from the beginning around education to the way that, you know, the systems are built and the ways that we practice and manage care. And through so many of your writings, you talk about the the ways that don't work for everybody. Even, you know, you're describing yourself as a slow learner. You're not fitting into this one-size-fits-all therapist model so mm-hmm. kind of starting from the beginning what do you see is wrong with the way that therapists are educated
2: well i think we i think the, the poof this is the big one i think we are trying <laughs> really hard right i mean not that people or academics or, or people in higher education are doing a bad job i think we're all trying to do a good job we're all trying to change and to uh, help therapists in training, especially to, to develop. But we must understand what is really required is not a downstream effort. It's not something that we need to do just to problem solve and to help people get through the system and pass and get the licensing and all the registration and whatnot. I think the endeavor is a lot of upstream work. You know, and that is difficult. You You really need to be Uh, intentional, deliberate about this approach. But I, you know, if I drill down to some specifics, which I talk a lot about in our blog in Frontiers, which is how to reimagine education psychotherapy. I think one of the key difference is what we would consider in the education system, the banking model versus a kindling model. A banking model is basically just, you know, where we give people the theory, practice, and then you know the theory research and then the practice where we try to give people the cognitive information that they need all the theoretical stuff and then get them out to practice much 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 later right maybe when they are in postgrad on the masters program to do that i suspect that one way that we need to rethink this is to flip this around to get people as close as possible to the to, to the work, the directedness the work, which is the conversational nature of reality where we create new experiences for people. And, and we need to get as close as possible to that, to kindle that piece, and then deconstruct with the theories, philosophies, and all the, the, the principles that govern how we work. Because then things get ignited, things get lit up, things get more interesting in, in, in that spirit.
0: And it seems like it would really allow folks to have something to hang the theories on, rather than trying to understand something that they don't yet, they haven't yet embodied.
2: I love that. I love that to hang on to something. It's uh, what Charles Charlie Munger, uh, the the right hand man of Warren Buffett, saying. That, you know, we need a lattice work, a, a coat hanger, to be able to to put all our different ideas right? And to be able to to sort of chunk them, because knowledge is multi-level. Knowledge is not just a single piece. It's hierarchical. It's a full network of different ideas. But if we could learn to kind of hang them and to see how all this interlink and how all these connects to you as a person, not just some kind of remote ideas in a book, but with your lived history, with your experiences is what you bring to the fore, into therapy, I, I think that would... Be probably worth thinking about. You know, I remember in my undergrad days, uh, I was in this course of counseling module, right? And what Dr. Robert Claus did for me, you know, probably changed my view. You know, the first lesson he gave, and we all came with this uh, textbook was it a Gerald Corey textbook, maybe? And it was all these different uh, schools of thought, right, that we had to go through. So you kind of know that we'd be covering the landscape of psychotherapy, the feel in and of itself. And he said to us after the first hour of introduction, he says, okay, guys, pack your bags, come. We're going to go to the other room, you know, and other room? Okay. And we went there. It looks like an FBI interrogation room, right? Because it's got this one corner where you go in, it's all like soundproof and all that. And then it says that, all right, majority of you will be seated here. And then as you can see the reflection of yourself, this is what we call a one-way mirror. And you're going to go to the other side. Two of you are going to go to the other side and we're going to watch you talk. And then we're like, whoa. Wow. Okay. And you know, for the first time in my life, not just being a slow learner, right? I was also an anxious kid. So by that time, this is like after two and a half years in the army, because all males in Singapore had to do that willingly or unwillingly. I was an unwilling one. (laughs) And I think I was about 21. I told myself, right? Screw it, right? You know, stop stop getting in the way. Just raise your hands to everything and say, yes, 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 you know? And before <laughs> I could think about it, just say yes. And I I say, what did I sign up for? <laughs> and Candy, uh, a beautiful uh, lady, she, she's got really colorful hair. She said, oh yeah, I'll do it. And she was really cool about it. And I was like, not so sure. So I followed Candy's lead <laughs> and I went to the other room. And then Dr. Close just chimes said, Okay, you guys now... Uh, just, talk. And was, just talk. Just talk. Just <laughs> talk. <laughs> and then we we're like, hello, testing. It's like, we can hear you. And Candy took the lead. I followed her lead. And my one question to her was, I like the color of your hair. <laughs> why, why did you do that? Uh, and then and we talked and she told me about, and then she asked me and we talked. And then after that, she he flicked the light on to the other side and, and he got the team to 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 reflect. I mean, as we know, for, for some people who are trained in family therapy or system thinking, this is a quite a norm. But later did I learn that being in an undergrad psych program, this is not the norm to do mm-hmm. this at the undergrad level. I had no idea. And... It really sparked off, for me, uh, uh, something. It really just opened my eyes to how important to have conversations that we can create safe spaces for truth-telling.
0: Safe spaces for truth-telling. I love that.
1: Thrizer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryser to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end to end, so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part, Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf.
0: They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryser.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions.
1: And I've been a a fanatic of your blog, of your books over the last couple of years. This just so wonderfully segues into a lot of what you'd written about in in your book, The First Kiss, about even the way that we structure going into those first sessions with clients and about how we turn people off. In those first sessions, you know, people walk in and it's this, you know, sterile room. Sometimes if you're working in an agency, it's this mountain of paperwork that we have to check through a bunch of boxes and, you know, hanging that hat on something else, especially if you're early in your career. Sum up this whole book in like the next like minute or two, just as far as (laughs) kind of moving to the next, (laughs) the next piece of like how we just keep getting in our own way when it comes to that that transition to actually seeing clients.
2: That's a good point. How we get in the way. How we get in the way. Uh, f- first off, the first kiss is not a romance novel. Um, <laughs> don't, and, don't be yeah. kissing
1: your clients. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, professional therapy does not include sex, so no kissing your clients.
2: <laughs> <the sex. laughs> but I, you know, I think the... I think we get in the way due to in part, what we're told to do. What we're told is the right thing to do in our field as counselors, family therapists, psychologists and whatnot because we, we are told that we need to take a thorough clinical assessment or an intake. And with that is a whole barrage. You know, you and your listeners and myself, we know all the kinds of questions we need to ask, to check, to make sure that we are doing the right thing, you know, to make sure that we don't miss out on risk, we don't miss out on drama or salient things that, you know, maybe because we, we didn't have the time or whatnot, we make sure that we need to cover our grounds. And on top of that, you got to make sure you write your case notes down. You cover those things, cover your ass. Make sure that uh, if there's any litigation, you don't get into trouble, right? But I think we need to to loosen that up a little bit, to undo the intake perspective, and think less about what we are taking, and kind of just focus about what we are giving or gifting to 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 people. Because think about it, right? I mean, if you have gone into therapy for the first time moving and taking the journey and planning and getting there and sitting there with a perfect stranger to talk about yourself not only talk about yourself but talk about the thing that pains you things that are difficult maybe even shame involved and then when you leave that you know where do you want what do you want to leave the person with you know when I was writing the book I used to go to this particular cafe and I would sit down. And on that particular day, there was a guy, you know, who was about my age and he was also sitting with his father-in-law and they were having coffee. And the father-in-law, after a while, just asked him, so, so how did it go? How did it go? And then the guy said, what do you mean? Yeah, you, you, you saw some psychologists or some shit, right? Like, how did that go? <laughs> and, and they said, yeah, you know, I said, I don't understand this business, he said. I spent one hour with this person, for, and I paid 180 bucks just for this person to ask me questions? I don't get it. <laughs> so I think we need to figure out a way to undo that intake perspective, open up the horizon a little bit so that we can kind of go back to the spirit and heart of it to think about what we are giving to, to people, even from the get-go.
0: I like that perspective. And I think the thing that for me kind of ties it into business, because if, if clients feel like they've just been probed and not actually given anything, I think they're not going to be as likely to come back. I think that there's enough, enough folks that have been involved in the medical model that they want to have some probing and some questions. But I think if we don't actually take care of the clients and give them something in that first session, I don't believe that we're going to have the the customer service that maybe they would want or, or the mm-hmm. we're not starting on a good foot. So I, to me, I, I really like this idea of what we're gifting. And I know from myself, the way I look at it is I want them to have something tangible to take with them, some whether it's a, a tool or some sort of something that allows them to feel just a little bit better, feel more hopeful. But I still ask a ton of questions. So I guess my question to you is, how do you how do you kind of cr- get the information that you need <laughs> to create a formulation, that kind of stuff? like what does that what does that trajectory look like if you're not asking a ton of questions on the first appointment?
2: yeah, good point. let me let me answer to that. but I also want to say that that has a critical implication because. We are not serving fast food, right? We're not just trying to go you know one session miracle kind of thing if if mm-hmm. sometimes in some settings, that may be the expectation. but in most situations, it's about continuity of care, a, a way to follow through. and I think the the reason I got I got uh sort of compelled to compel to to write this book was consulting with individuals and agencies and you know looking at the data sets as we look at the outcomes to help them to you know move the needle just that little bit better and we, we see that on the average across all countries right and all different kinds of settings the average number of sessions that people typically come for it's about four to six Four to six is a typical range. Now, even if you're doing long-term therapy, there are, of course, outliers that people who come longer than that. But on average, it comes about four to six. So the next question is, when we look at that, you know, we look at the trajectory of change, when does change typically typically happens. And I stumbled upon one piece of other statistical information looking at that, was, was that even though that's the average, think about what is the most common number of sessions that people come for. And uh, in statistical terms, we call that mode. And the modal number of session turns out to be one. One, that about 20 to 30% of people come only for one session. And then they stop. And I mean, we could argue that maybe they got what they want. But if the plan was from some kind of continuation, then that's unplanned termination. That's not part of the gig, not, not part of how you, you set up. And I think when I, when I started to look at that, I, was thought, I thought it was an outlier. So I asked some clinicians and I work with other agencies and I saw the same thing. Then when I turned back and look at the literature, well, it's a common thing. It's common, and I'm like, why are we accepting this as common as okay, right? I mean, so I, I, then I went to the clinicians clinician and asked them, hey, you know, instead of just kind of vague numbers, tell me, these guy's, guys on your list who, who came for only one visit, uh, what happened? Do you remember? And they said, who are these guys? Then it struck me that- <laughs>
0: They didn't even know who course. they were?
2: <laughs> That's right. Because then I look at my own data set, and I I will say this with with some level of embarrassment. I don't remember some of them as well mm. because I only saw them one time. We have no eyes on an aggregated level, on an individual personal level, because we're so busy. We are inundated with so many different cases to attend to, other side projects, you know. And to me, that's worrisome. And 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 that's how I got started. But but let me come back to your point, if I may, Katie. I think the the thing about how then do we gather the information to to be able to to formulate or conceptualize you know what we uh, how we're going to intervene and help this person? Herbert Simon has this term. Herbert Simon is a renowned uh, decision maker. He calls this satisficing. That instead of getting maximal level of information, or on the flip side, getting minimal amount of information, there may be a sweet spot in between, like an inverted U, that we may just get sufficient, that would suffice for the moment. Because information is not transformation. If we gather more information, what happens is our confidence increase because we actually have more knowledge, more knows, uh, more information about the person. But It doesn't necessarily translate to better decision-making. It just means that you feel more confident because now you have ticked the boxes of what you need to do to get a thorough assessment, but it may not necessarily help you to have a satisfactory level of information that can be helpful for the person. Because after all, as we say, if you work long enough in the field, assessment is always ongoing
1: this builds into this idea of first principles that you've written about before and there's you know the the different kinds of knowledge that you've described the conditional the content the process knowledge and kind of this over reliance on just gathering data but not necessarily being able to apply it or do anything with it that ends up just kind of turning some people off, especially in that first session when they're maybe looking mm. at their most vulnerable times for some sort of transformative process, or at least the hope of some sort of transformative process. That's right.
0: I'd like to know what are the first principles, because I've not read your books. I will now start reading them voraciously, but I tell me what the first principles are.
2: Yeah. You know, that, that was the other question that was worried of being asked, uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> because, you know, we talked a little bit about that in the book, uh, in our recent book together with, uh, two of my heroes, really, Mark Hubbell and, and, and Scott Miller. And, uh, we addressed this thing, uh, about principle-based learning, uh, but in brief, principles are really about the fundamentals, about the what Aristotle would call the first basis from which a thing is known, you know, drilling down to that. In fact, Emerson has a quote about, you know, you, you know methods that are many, you know, and you can have many methods, but if you have methods and no principles, uh, you're not in a good way. So principles to me are about fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamental way of asking, understanding stuff. So if I could use an uh, analogy here, uh, if you think about music, right, you could think about wanting to create songs. If you're a songwriter, you'd be thinking about some fundamentals, some principles that govern what creates an impactful song, like the format about verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus, chorus, right? That. Create, creates a scaffold. If you're writing a story, you know, stories go through a narrative arc. They have three acts. They, they go through a sort of uh, journey or maybe sometimes what we call in, in Joseph Campbell's language, the hero's journey. You see this all the time playing out from Star Wars to Lord of the Rings and all kinds of movies can be interweaved into this principle of the hero's journey. So I think if you if you can imagine this, if you could picture that methods right at the top, and then theories on the second layer, and then right at the bottom are principles. I think we need to focus on that rather on on the third piece, which is the principles instead of just figuring out approaches and uh, and methods. Does that make sense?
0: It does. Thank you.
1: Which seems to be the part that's missing in developing good therapists in so much of developing research or the the magical model or the magical theory that we end up spending so much time teaching you know evidence-based therapy that we don't focus Mm. so much on building good therapists and really you know there's so much of this difficulty in getting Educational institutions, getting postgraduate education to really adopt these ideas. And, you know, you're talking about working with Scott Miller and Mark Hubble and all these ideas around deliberate practice that really gets people to look at why why they're doing what it's doing that's successful. Mm -hmm. What has been the slow adoption of deliberate practice into the psychotherapy world? Because This, you know, it seems to be something that you know, especially Scott has been working on since the nineties that just seems to have so much reluctance around it.
2: Yeah. Again, borrowing from the analogy about music, I, I, you know, another world that I am obsessed with besides therapy is is music. And one thing that I noticed for myself in, in the domain of music is this, it's so much easier to buy tools than to get good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So I I spend a lot of time thinking about therapy, about music, spend a lot of time working on that. And in music, you know, I spend a lot of time looking at gears uh, or or what we call gas syndrome, which is a gear acquisition syndrome where, oh, you know, this mixer, oh, this keyboard, oh, this pedal. Maybe if I get that, I would then be able to write this song Hmm. that I'm trying to do. I think that's similar with therapy. You know, if you look at all the the, the feeds and uh, advertisements that's coming up, it's all about this, right? And it speaks to the immediacy, it speaks to some level about our fear of, of like, oh, not knowing what's the latest evidence of stuff. But, you know, I don't know about you, but the musicians that I really end up enjoying is because you can tell, you have a hint that, this is their insights coming out onto the outside, that this is them, this is uniquely this person, even even though their voice may sound like uh, not so good, like Bob Dylan, but you know that there's something soulful coming out and you're moved by that. So I think, you know, Kurt, your assessment about focusing about therapies instead of therapists is similar with music, you know, you don't want to get caught up in whether are you doing the technically most proficient stuff, or you're just making a song with three chords. Because at the end of the day, you want to figure out how to let to, to kind of leave yourself behind paradoxically, and let yourself come through to speak with another person who's also letting themselves come through in the therapy room. So I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a, Phenomena that's uh, not unexpected, that it's slow to, of slow for uptake. But, you know, of recent years, we see more and more people talking about this whole uh, deliberate practice piece. My worry is this. I'm worried that deliberate practice becomes capital B and capital P. That we are so concerned of this more as a noun than to do the verb. Because... Mm. If you really stop to think about this, there's a level of dedication involved. There's a level of sweat and there is no secret formula. There's nothing magical. There's nothing kind of like, if you do this one thing, you know, and then you get better overnight and your clients will come back and thank you. You know, there's there's no magic formula to this. It's hard work. And yet there is a scaffold. There is a structure that we can offer you to think Traditionally, in the education system, if you can come back to the theme of higher education, is that education tells you what to think. But when you come out in real life, you soon, uh, you get a kick in the butt that you need to figure out what to think, what to learn. And I think that's where the rubber meets the road.
0: Well, it sounds like what you're talking about is that deliberate practice is not even what to think and what to learn, you know, kind of what you should be thinking. It's how to think. Right. It's how do I approach this? How do I understand this? How do I assess this in this moment? And it's more really being able to assess and, and rate your own skills. I know yeah. that that you have a new book out and you know, better results, that there's a section where you and your co-authors designate a chapter about what is not deliberate practice. So We've talked a little bit in past episodes, and we'll link to them in the show notes, about what deliberate practice is, or at least our understanding of it. But what is not deliberate practice?
2: Well, the first conflation that we make is that we conflate clinical practice with deliberate practice, because experience does not get us better. You know, I I, I say this with some trepidation, because it has lots of implication. We get more confident as the years go by. But as we all know, confidence is not competence. And when we look at the data, Simon Goldberg and colleagues had released a paper a few years ago looking at just this, when clinicians have been collecting outcome data systematically, routinely, using that as a way to guide their work and composite that across time. And we look at uh, the data to see what happens to each individual clinicians, whether do they actually get better? And if you look at studies from David Olinsky and Michael Ronstadt that that's true. most clinicians do feel this from the beginning all the way to become a highly experienced or seasoned practitioner. Our confidence to be more healingly involved goes up. But Simon Goldberg's work shows that in spite of that, our confidence plateaus, our competence, our outcomes does not improve. In fact, on average, there's actually a slight regression downwards. So it's almost like saying if someone has 20 years of experience, it probably means one year of experience repeated 19 more times.
1: Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered.
0: Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code Modern for two months free.
1: When, once we get to this point in our careers where we feel like we, we know enough that we, we lose some of that hunger to Continue to build on that that fire, that kindling that you talk about, that we we reach a place of complacency that it feels like so many of us just kind of lose out on that ambition once we reach a place of comfort within our own lives and our own practice that really, as I'm hearing you, is the challenge of continuing to be lifelong learners
2: because we have this pitfall, because we have this blind spot. Yeah, I think that's a challenge. I think you know if you if you if you speak to therapists of all ages as well as all nationality, one consistent thing you hear is that we all want to grow, we all want to get better, we all want to do better for our clients. But faced with a lot of upstream efforts, a lot of difficulties in organisations and systemic challenges, I mean this is hard work. This is hard even just to make the time to, to do that. So, you know, I think most people do want to get better. Now, for, remind me again, say, say your question one more time. I want to make sure I hear you correctly.
1: It, it wasn't so much of a question as there's this observation of therapists reach this place of complacency
2: when they, they feel confident enough yeah. And, you know, that's tricky. That's where we need to counteract that because when I, I remember that, you know, I heard one, one of my colleagues saying that, you know, I spent all these years doing this, you know, and now uh, I get to this point and I should reap the rewards. And then I, I'm thinking, but isn't this meant to be lifelong? Like, isn't this meant to be something that we, we do, uh, all the way through our careers. But majority of us, you know, we are devoted to that. We, we feel that there's some need to push that growth edge, that threshold, but the difficulty is figuring out what to work on that actually has leverage for you. Because it's not like a blanket thing that everybody should now do this, do A, do B, do C, because for what you need to work on and what I need to work on will be different that has implication based on where you are at because you know before the days of google maps and whatnot if a friend was to come to your house right and he or she rings you before you can give the instruction you need to figure out where the person's coming from and we argue in the book that we need to figure out where you're at before where you need to go and that means that we need to have a systematic way that we can collate your outcomes one client at a time, session by session, pull all that together with, with a composite level of closed cases and then examine, all right, how effective you are. Now, remember that we talked about performance at the beginning piece. This can strike terror for some therapists, like to go- yeah. <laughs> Like, okay, am I really effective? What if I suck? What if I'm in the wrong profession? What if, you know, and that is where performance can impede learning because we need to shift. We need to create uh, spaces to, to explore each person's growth edge. And one thing, you know, I've been consulting with some master's programs, and even though there may be a slow uptake, but there are people. There are people who are, putting their heads down, trying to undo the old ways now. And I, I think we need to, to acknowledge that. And and one thing that, that's striking is that instead of measuring performance, we, we really need to figure out a way of measuring growth, a way to kind of track to see how people are willing to figure out first wherever you're at to figure that out. And then let's kind of help you inch by inch by inch move towards Vygotsky calls this the zone of proximal development to get towards your growth edge, and I think that's where it's re-moralizing. Because if you could do that, and I've seen the payoff for clinicians when they do that, something within just kind of glows and figure out you know a way to to do this. Because if you could see that what your effort, where your efforts where you're banking in is paying dividends you feel moralized, you feel uh, uplifted to carry on, and, and that can spread to the other people that you meet as well.
0: That was one thing I was thinking about when when both of you were talking about kind of the complacency that can happen is I think that there can be a burnout, a, a, de- a lack of desire to learn, giving up. And so this idea of, of remoralizing people is yeah. exciting to me to actually get to a place where there's more efficacy. I and mean, I think those are the types of things that we theoretically are helping our clients with, right? We're helping them to find their areas of confidence, to find those things and to help that. therapists in that same way just seems really rewarding because I think when, when I feel most ineffective with clients is when I'm, I find myself finding excuses, not wanting to do anything, hoping the client cancels. Like, I'm not saying like, Ooh, how do I take this on? And this is, Fortunately, a gross overgeneralization. This was more when I was in an agencies and super burned out. But like mm. when I'm struggling, it seems like that's the point at which I want to back down. Not at which it's not the point at which I want to take on new learning and understand where I'm faltering.
2: That's right. That's right. I I, I akin this to a couple of years ago. But this is pre Kit time. Like. Before we had kids, you know, my wife and I used to go to the bowling alley, and and you know we just loved the you know spending time to uh, throw the ball and and chit chat and all that. And to me, in many ways, I'll feel is a bit like going to the bowling alley armed with everything. You know, you got all your gears, and you got all the whatever arm bands, and you got your nice smooth out bowling ball with your cool white shoes and you're getting ready to, <laughs> to bowl. And then you throw that ball time and time again to, to see if you could hit that strike or that spare, except that your only feedback that you're getting is the sound of the pin because you're bowling through a veil. You don't know how what happens to the pin? And you ask to repeat. You ask to keep going and keep trying. And say, all right, you did well. You heard that sound. Yep, I think that went down. And then keep going and keep, you know, <laughs> I think we're bowling uh, through a veil. And I think we need to figure out a way to get closer, more proximal towards feedback so that we can feed forward. So, you know, Kurt raised the point about what, how we are taught about various evidence-based models. I I think that's nothing wrong. I mean, that's a a, a thing to learn. But I think to go beyond that just means instead of taking the pill model approach, which is do this thing, adhere to this, make sure you're you're doing this right, right? Because one side effect of doing that is you have no flexibility to tweak, to calibrate, continuous tweaking. The only way to tweak that is to quickly take the feedback and feed it forward to go, all right, that worked, that hit the pin. Good, repeat that. That didn't hit the pin? Oh, adjust your arm a little bit. Maybe stand more to this side, you know, and and tweak. I think instead of the pill model approach, we need that kind of continuous calibration approach so that we can figure out how we are doing, not just outsourcing to, you know, because I'm doing some kind of evidence-based model, so that's fine. I mean, we cannot continue to troll the pin over a veil.
1: I could talk with Dr. Chow for hours (laughs) about so many things, but we're going to be respectful of his time. And thank you so much for spending your time with us. Where can people find more of you and your information and all of the wonderful writings and books that you're putting out?
2: Well, it's a treat to be here. So, so thanks for all the great questions. Uh, if you want to find out more, you could go to my website at darylchow.com. And specifically for therapists, you could go to com slash frontiers. And I have a, a blog site called Frontiers of Psychotherapist Development. And there's stuff out there for free. You know, I try to put out stuff uh, consistently about this topic and what we are discovering to help you to be at your frontier and books, links and all are are there. We have got two online workshops that are going on as well. If you're interested, one is about deep learner. Maybe I, kind of created that course for myself, (laughs) but (laughs) I was really, you know, it was only recently launched and, you know, it was two years in the making and so happened that the launch hit right at the smack of the COVID time. And it's so interesting just hearing people's perspective about wanting to, to join, not just collect dots, but to connect dots of what they're learning and how this has implications of their client outcomes, whether are they moving the needle and how to synthesize all that they're doing, how to protect time for play and learning. So that's that, you could find that on my website and also another online web-based workshop called uh, Reuniting Clinical Supervision. This is specifically for clinical supervisors who want to change the way that we are approaching this to actually reap better results Uh, That's all there. And finally, if you are into social media, we have a close group for Frontiers to Psychotherapist Development 2. You can look that up and join in the conversation.
1: And we will include links to all of those things in our show notes. You can find those at mtsgpodcast.com. And while you're over there, you can check out the now totally live new Therapy Reimagined website. And that's going to have all of our reimagined conference information. We're reimagining our 2020 conference due to COVID. So all of the latest updates you can find out over there. Dr. Chow is one of our keynote speakers this year. We are so grateful to be able to put together such a a wide range of phenomenal speakers. Check all of that out over on the website. And we're able to put that on with the help of our generous sponsors, Simple Practice, Simple Practice Learning, and all the CE information you can find out on the website, too. So, until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy and Dr. Daryl Chow. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we
2: are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.
1: Remember to check out Thrizer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions.
0: Thanks so much to our partner Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code modern gets you two free months.